So several years ago, there was a New York City police officer that was driving over one of the bridges in New York, and he came across a man that was standing on the edge of the bridge uh, waiting to jump off and commit suicide. And so the police officer stopped his car, and he gets out, and he says, whoa, 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 time out, time out. I'll make you a deal. I'll let you talk to me for about 10 minutes and tell me why you think life isn't worth living if you give me 10 minutes to tell you why I think life is worth living. And so the guy says, sure, that's fine, and then we'll kind of resolve, see, what, see where things go from there. And so apparently, as the story goes, after 20 minutes of conversation, they both joined hands and jumped off together. Just a little bit of dark humor there. I know, I know, sorry. But if you have that sort of sense of humor, welcome home. This is going to be a great church for you. <laughs> not sure if that story is true or not. You might Google it while I'm preaching anyway. Uh, my name is Danny, and I just want to take a moment and welcome everyone here today. Some of you are from the Franklin campus. We want to give it up for you guys. We know that you're... You experienced some technical difficulties over there at the Franklin campus. Hopefully we'll get that all squared away for you next week. Uh, Excited about the building that's going up for you guys in Franklin. That exciting. Walls are up. The ceiling is up. Very, very exciting. Of course, I want to welcome back everyone who comes to the Greenwood campus here and everyone watching live at our Banta campus. Can we give it up for our Banta crowd over there? Love you guys. And we also started this thing called Microsites, and it's a little, little basically a gathering at Ball State University. We've got some college students over there that little have a little Emanuel campus on the, uh, at the, on the campus of Ball State, and they're watching us right now. Can we get up for our Ball State Microsite? Love you guys. Uh, so yeah, great things going on. People watching all across the world, we welcome our online audience, and uh, literally all across this country and other countries, we welcome you if you're tuning in. We're in a series right now called The Problem with God. And today what I want to do is talk about the problem of God's existence. The problem of God's pretty heavy stuff. Does God exist? But before we answer that question, I have three particular arguments as to why I think God does in fact exist. We'll get there in just a second. I actually want to answer a different question. And that's the questions of of the relevance of God. Is God's existence relevant to us? In other words, is it necessary for him to exist at all? And it, because if, if he's not relevant to our lives, then we're really not even going to ask the question, does he even exist? We don't have to ask the question because it doesn't matter. But if you go back to my dark story of the police officer on top of the bridge with the person and they both jump off together, I would argue that that story proves the relevance of God. Because if there is no God, then does life have meaning? I mean, shouldn't we all contemplate getting on top of the bridge and jumping off if there is no God? Because if there's no God, there's no purpose. There's, this is all a random accident, and there's no meaning, and there's no purpose to our lives whatsoever. That story has a lot of implications on our lives. It was the philosopher, the American philosopher, Mortimer Adler, who said this, more consequences for thought and action, jumping off a bridge or not jumping off a bridge, follow the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question. What a statement. The implications of God's existence are huge upon our lives and our actions and how we feel and how we go and our choices in this life in regards to sexuality and money and friendship and business and what we do. If there is no God, if there's no ultimate reference of right and wrong, wow. 
I would, I would make the argument that God's existence is incredibly relevant to our, our lives. So if that's true, now we need to ask ourselves a question. Well, does he exist at all? I mean, if, if we sort of need him to exist, how do we know that he does exist? Can we prove that he exists? And, and I'm here to tell you that I cannot prove today that God exists. I wish, I wish, I wish I had some awesome connection with God where Jesus would just kind of show up physically when I asked him to. Wouldn't that be sweet? Like, Jesus, okay, like right now would be awesome. Like, and whammo, he's right here. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? And then he like does something really cool that freaks everybody out and everybody goes, I'm a believer. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, like taught it, turn water into wine or heal, heal a blind guy or a leper, leprosy, a guy with leprosy or raise somebody from the dead. Oh, by the way, he did all those things in the New Testament. <laughs> uh, but I can't do that. He's not going to do it. He is here in the sense that his spirit is here, but he's physically not here. And so therefore we can't prove God's existence in that way. But I can make some pretty strong inductive arguments that he does exist. An inductive argument is simply an argument that seeks to persuade that a conclusion is probable and, say it with me, reasonable. So many people, especially in the atheistic community and those who say there is no God or in the agnostic community, they say that, see, the reason I don't have faith in God or I don't go to church or religion and all that stuff is because all of those people of faith, they're just taking a jump into the darkness. It's, it, there's, there's no answers, and so faith is just a crutch for them because they don't have any answers to why we're here or the, or the existence of, of creation or anything like that. And I would totally and 100% disagree with that. Faith is not a jump or a leap into the darkness. Faith is confidence in a series of, of thought processes and arguments and evidence. And we have confidence in what we know. God has not left us without evidence or the ability to think and reason. So I'm going to make three inductive arguments. Again, an inductive argument is a, is a, a reasonable and probable conclusion. Not conclusive. Okay, can't prove it 100%. But it's very, very reasonable and probable. And so let's look at the first one. I, I want to look at the evidence of conscience. The evidence of conscience. Some will call this the moral law or the law of human nature. The evidence of conscience. Each one of us, if you do a little bit of self-reflection, you have this thing inside of you that says, man, that's not right. You shouldn't do that to him. You shouldn't do that to her. You shouldn't treat people that, treat people that way. Or you should have. You should have been more like this, or you should have done this. Each one of us have this thing and this mechanism inside of us. Have you ever felt it before? You know, even if you're not a person of faith, or even if you are a person of faith, you really don't need God to have this thing. You just kind of have it. It's like this, wow, man, you shouldn't hurt people like that. Like, one human shouldn't treat another human being like that, like abuse or rape or murder or that's not right. Or you should have done this, and you should have been kind, and you should have shared, or you should have been compassionate, or you should have had empathy, and you didn't, and you should have. What is that inside of us? We could call that the moral law or evidence of conscience. C.S. Lewis, as I mentioned last week, if you were here, was a former atheist, and he moved away from atheism to theism, which is not Christianity. It's just a belief that God, there is a God. Not sure what God, but there is a God. He moved away from atheism to theism because he recognized the law 
of human nature or this evidence of conscience. In chapter one of his book, Mere Christianity, which is actually a series of radio broadcasts during, uh, during the 1940s, which was turned into a book, chapter one, page one of his book, listen to what he says here. Every one of us have heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. However it sounds, I believe that we can learn some, something very important from listening to the things that people say to each other. They say things like, how would you like it if somebody did that to you? That's my seat. I was here first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing anything to you. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. Come on. You promised. People say things, things like this to each other all day, every day. Educated people as well as uneducated people. Children as well as grown-ups. Now, what makes me, now what interests me most about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not please him. He is appealing, rather, to some kind of standard or behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always, he tries to make out that what he's been doing does not really go against that standard or that if it does, there is some special excuse. <laughs> Anybody ever been there? <laughs> what is Lewis talking about? He's talking about this ingrained law of human nature. Man, you shouldn't behave that way or you should have behaved this way. Here's my question. Where does it come from? That's what Lewis was struggling with. He noticed it in himself and he noticed it in other people. Where does this law of conscience or this evidence of conscience come? Does it, is, is it a personal issue? Is it, well, I have my opinions and you have your opinions? Is, is that what it is? I don't think it is. Because if that's the case, then there are about seven and a half billion different opinions about what is right and what is wrong in, the human, in this world. You agree? And let me, let me, let me put it this way. This, this, this is pretty convincing, at least to me. If it's all about personal opinion and it's really up to me and it's up to you to, de to determine what is right and what is wrong, in regards to a discussion about the Holocaust where Adolf Hitler killed seven million plus Jews and then many, many, many other millions of people, Poles, and in regards to the Holocaust, really all you and I can say if, it's, if right and wrong is a matter of personal opinion is that according to me, I think what Adolf Hitler was did was disgusting, but that's just my opinion. And then the next person to my right could say, well, I happen to think it was a noble thing. I think Jewish people were less human than other people, and so what he did was right. And all of us in the room here today would go, oh. It's, right and wrong goes way beyond personal opinion. Yes or no? It's not just merely a matter of what I think versus what this person thinks. We're both appealing to some sort of standard. That is neither one nor the other. Listen to what Lewis says on, on page 13, chapter 2. He says, the moment that you say that one set of moral ideas can be better than another, you are in fact measuring them both against a standard, saying that one of them conforms to that standard more nearly than the other. But the standard that measures two things is something different from either one. He says, you are in fact comparing them to both with some capital R, real morality. Admitting that there is such a thing as a capital R, real right, independent of what people's opinions are, what people might think. And that some people's ideas get nearer to the real capital R right than others. What is he saying? 
He's saying that if American ideas or values are better than, let's go back to the 1940s, Nazi Germany's ideas of morality and what is right and wrong, we're both appealing to a standard that exists apart from each one of those moral ideas. For example, if I say, well, I have an idea of New York City, and you say, well, I have an idea of what New York City is, all, is like. And I, and I kind of know what New York City is like because I was raised there, I was born there, and I've been there, went to school there, right? And you say, well, I visited, and I, I, I had some business in New York, and I've been down to, you know, to Times Square, and I've seen it, and all that stuff, and we both have an idea of what New York is like. Well, the reason that we can compare our ideas or who's closer to an understanding of what New York is like is because New York actually exists. There's a real place called New York that is separate from what I think about it and separate from what you think about it. And now we're comparing whose ideas are closer to the reality. It's the same thing when it comes to morality. Well, our ideas are better than your ideas. Well, how can we even have that discussion? It's because there is a standard separate from both of our ideas. And that standard is who? Is God himself. Listen to what Paul said in Romans chapter 2. Even the Gentiles, people who do not know God who do not have God's written law. That means the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They don't have God's written law. Show, even these people, they show that they know his law instinctively when they obey it. Even without having heard it, they've never sat under Moses' teachings or any of the rabbis, right? Listen to what he says. They demonstrate that God's law is written where? That word heart is the mind and the soul and the inner being. For their own conscience, watch this, and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. What is Paul trying to articulate or what does he articulate? He's talking about how inside of every single one of us we have this sense of right and wrong. How did it get there? Where does it come from? It cannot be a matter of personal opinion. It comes from God who put it there. That's the evidence of conscience and that was enough that was enough to get C.S. Lewis to move away from atheism to theism and eventually towards Christianity I don't know what it does for you but it helps me as well to put my confidence in God number two the evidence of design so number one evidence of conscience number two evidence of design these are inductive arguments they seek to persuade that a particular conclusion is probable and reasonable not conclusive What do I mean by evidence of design? Well, it's called the teleological argument. You can do a little research when you get home on it. William Paley is a guy who articulated this very well. He said, imagine you're walking down the beach and you discover a piece of wood. It's very simple to kind of deduce the origin of this piece of wood. Perhaps many years ago, it broke off a tree and it floated in the ocean for months and months and months, maybe even years, and eventually the waves brought it to the sand and here it is right here, a piece of wood. But what would happen if you, on that same beach, you came across this wonderful little pocket watch? William Paley says, in order to kind of figure out the the origin of this pocket watch, you'd you'd have to look at it and say, wow, you know, this is interesting. You know, it's got design, it's, it's complex, it's got numbers, it's got three hands on it that are moving around. It opens, it closes. Where did this come from? What William Paley argued is that because of the complexity and because of the design, you would point to a designer. Someone had to create this because it's so complex. It's so intricate and there's lots of little pieces that go together to make this watch 
work. Guess what? The universe, Sir Isaac Newton saw this, one of the most brilliant scientists who's ever lived, walked this planet, recognized that the universe, particularly our solar system, was much more complex than a simple pocket watch. Therefore, Sir Isaac Newton said this, mathematician, theologian, scientist, when I look at the solar system, I see that the earth is at the right distance from the sun to receive the proper amounts of heat and light. And what he implies here is to sustain human life, animal life, and plant life. It's just at the exact right distance. If the sun was a little further away, we would all freeze to death. If it was a little bit closer, we would all burn up. But it's at the exact right spot, at the exact distance from the earth, so that human life can exist. And then he says this, this did not happen by chance. It's too complex. One of the smartest people to ever work this planet, walk this planet. It's too complex, too much, too much information, too, too much design in this whole thing. Someone had to create the watch. So scholars tell us today, not Christian scholars, just scientists and scholars who study this stuff for a living, they tell us that in order for the universe to have come into, into being in such a way to sustain human life the way it's doing right now, in order for it to, to happen by chance, the number is ast astronomical. It's 10 to the 138th power. This number is impossible for me to articulate, so let's cut it in half, and let's look at how many atoms there are in the universe. That's 10 to the 70th power, okay? That's a, that's a pretty big number, okay? The number of atoms in the universe. Atoms are very, very small. Have you ever looked at them under a microscope? <laughs> This is 10 to the 70th power. I'm going to try to say this and try to get it out. 10 to the 70th power is 10 quadrillion vigintillion and 100,000 quadrillion vigatillion. <laughs> now, before this talk, I didn't know what a vigatillion was. In fact, I still don't know what a vigatillion is. <laughs> this number here is astronomical. It's, un it's incomprehensible. Then you double it, okay, almost double it, and then you have the chances of the universe coming into existence in such a way that it sustains human life. And all the atheists and the, and the evolutionists want to say, no, but if you just had enough time and enough chance, it could have happened. Even a renowned, passionate atheist like Richard Dawkins who's written profusely about atheism, and if he had his way, he would eliminate Christianity and faith and religion altogether. Even he had to admit that the numbers, the numbers just eliminated chance. He said this, the more statistically improbable a thing is, the less we can believe that it just happened by blind chance. Superficially, the obvious alternative to chance is intelligent design. Now, I don't know if you can hear his sarcasm in that statement, and I don't know if you know who Richard Dawkins is, but he uses the word superficially because what he's implying is that if you just don't really think too hard about it, you're just going to look at stuff and you're going to say, wow, this, the impossibility of this happening by chance is so crazy. Super, so superficially, what we're going to say is that somebody designed this. But if you are really, 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 really smart like me, you would look deeper and study the science behind it and discover that it actually did happen by chance. 
to which we would say, really? How many of you have ever seen Mount Rushmore? This is, this is the argument that Dawkins is making, that we are, all, we are all here by random chance, 10 to the 138th power, okay? Have you ever been to Mount Rushmore? Okay, some of you haven't. I haven't either, but you've seen the photo. Ready? Here's a picture of Mount Rushmore. There is a theoretical math equation that you can come up with, just like scientists and people have done to explain the, the universe, 10 to the 138th power. I don't know what the number is, but you can come up with it. There is a theoretical chance that over time, rain and erosion and wind created this. Now, I know that, I know that some of that tickles some of you. It tickles me too, and I'm trying not to laugh. But, 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 but that is a true statement. If you, if you, if you have, if theoretically, there is a chance. Now, the chance is astronomical. It would be like 10 to the I don't know what power. But you have to admit, on paper, this is possible if you have enough time, and you have enough wind, and you have enough rain, and you have enough erosion. Now, okay, that's fine. I, but let's think practically. Let's, let's think the way Sir Isaac Newton was thinking and the way that William Paley was thinking. Mo, it's more probable that some people actually got up on some scaffolding with some hammers and some chisel, chisels and carved these faces out. Yes or no? Remember, remember, remember what an inductive argument is. An inductive argument is, is just basically a persuasive argument that says a particular conclusion is probable and reasonable. Not conclusive... I'm telling you folks, and I'm not great at this stuff, but the universe is far more complex than four faces carved out on some rock. When you look into the scriptures, and I know, so, I know what the atheists are going to say if they're watching, if you're watching, oh, you can't go to the Bible. But when we go to the Bible, we find that reasonable explanation. Psalm 102, verse 25. In the beginning, you, God, laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens, the stars, the solar system, the universe are the work of your hands. I think it takes more faith to believe that it all happened by chance than it does for an intelligent designer to create something incredibly complex. Yes or no? Let me give you the third one. The third argument <clears throat> is simply this. The evidence of cause and effect. It's similar. It's similar, but it's different. The evidence of cause and effect. Everything that we see in this universe, or at least within our, the naked eye, what we can see on our planet, is contingent. What does that mean? It means that, that this, it, it was depending on something else for its existence, right? So, so the law of cause and effect, or the evidence of cause and effect, seeks to answer this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Like, why am I here as opposed to not being here? Well, the simple answer is that Ruthie Anderson, my mom, and Arthur Anderson, my dad got together, and I'll spare you the details, but they created Danny Anderson. Okay? You with me? Yes or no? Right? That's the law of cause and effect. Everything that we see, whether it's a book or, 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 or a cell phone, everything we see had a beginning. And then someone wrote something, designed something, spent some time together, put some pieces together, put some paragraphs together, put some cardboard and paper together, and you get a book, or you get a cell phone, you get a watch, you get something, you get a human. It's a law of cause and effect. Here's how the argument works, ready? Whatever begins to exist had a cause. Agree, yes or no? 
right? That's what we see. That's just the law. That's like the law of gravity. It just is. It's not, it doesn't take faith to believe that. It's just a fact, right? Watch this. The universe, and this is the stickler, number two, we're going to circle back to it. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause because everything that comes into existence had a cause, right? You with me? Well, who could have caused the universe? It had to be something or some force or someone that never had a beginning. We would call that God. The cause is God. Now, this argument here was debunked or or fought against vehemently by saying simply that number two is not true. That the universe never had a beginning. The universe was eternal. But this whole, that whole thing fell apart. That whole, you know, rebuttal fell apart in 1929 when this guy, Edwin Hubble, with his telescope, looked into outer space and was able to prove, and I can't explain it, okay, I'm not smart enough, but I know that in 1929 he made one of the greatest discoveries of the 20th century, that the universe did in fact have a starting point. Anybody study this out? 1929, Edwin Hubble, we later on called the Hubble Telescope after we named it after him. He discovered that at one point there was absolutely nothing and then all of a sudden there was something. And it didn't matter if you're a person of faith or if you're an atheist, everyone now in the scientific community agrees that he was actually right. He was absolutely right. No one is saying anymore that the universe is eternal, that it always has been. They all know scientifically that at some point there was nothing and then there was something. Now, if you push an atheist on this, if you push someone who, who believes that there is no God and it's all, you know, uh, you know just, just you can explain everything through material things. And if you push them and you say, okay, Edwin Hubble discovered that there was at one point in time, there was no thing, nothing. How did we get here? You want to see an atheist squirm? <laughs> Just ask him that question. Because here's what they're going to do. Here's the thing. Is, well, see what happened where there were some gases. And then these gases mixed with some other gases. And then, and then there was a big bang. Time out. Edwin Hubble proved that at one point in time there was nothing. What does that mean? No thing. <laughs> so that would include no gases. There's no math equations. But, but, but the, see, the atheist knows in order to create something, you have to start with something. But, but there was one, at one point, there was nothing. Where did the something come from? They have absolutely no answer for that question. But we do. Because we know that in Genesis 1.1, it says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The uncaused causer flicked it all into existence. You call it the Big Bang, call it whatever you want to call it. There was nothing, and then there was something. Where did it come from? It came from the unmoved mover. It came from God. Because everything that exists had a cause. Therefore, the cause of the universe is God. Again, is this conclusive? No, 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 it's not conclusive. But it's probable. It's reasonable. Do you agree? Yes or no? Right? If you're an atheist, you have to at least think about this stuff. If you're agnostic and you don't know, you have to at least consider and say, hmm, that's a pretty good argument. I mean, it's not conclusive, but it makes you think. There's this really, really, really smart guy named Francis Collins. He actually led the Human Genome Project, which was the largest collaborative biological project ever to date. I don't even know what it is. I just know it was big. Okay? And Francis Collins led that Really smart dude. This is what he had to say about the Big Bang. 
the Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. Thank you, Edward Edwin Hubble, right? I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done it. It's probable. It's reasonable. Why? You get the evidence of cause and effect. You have the evidence of design. And you have the evidence of conscience. See, faith is not a leap into the dark. It is based on very good logical reasoning and thinking and evidence in the universe. I would argue today that it takes more faith to believe that there is no God and we are all here by chance than it does to believe in an intelligent designer and creator of a human soul. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? For, for me, for me, it builds my faith. It really does. It helps my prayer life. Because if I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists, I'm actually talking to somebody. <laughs> That'll help your prayer life. Some of you struggle with prayer because you don't think he's there. <laughs> you think you're talking to Santa Claus like on Christmas night, you know? But what if you knew, what if you knew in the core of your being, like he is there? Man, you'd pray different, don't you think? I mean, I'm just assuming. Would you have more faith? Would you have more confidence that God is going to be there for you in tough times? Absolutely. Would you have more trust overall in God if you knew he was there for you? I'm talking to Christ followers right now. See, this information... You know what you do this? You use this to build your confidence in Jesus. To trust him with your entire life. Let me, tell you not, let me tell you what not to do with this information if you're a Christ follower, okay? Do not weaponize yourself. What do I mean by that? Do not take the evidence of conscience and the evidence of design and the evidence of the moral law and put some bullets in your gun and then a Monday morning show up at work and say, we're all the atheists. <laughs> moral law and argument for design and argument for cause and effect and take that and take that and take that and blast everybody at work on Monday. You know what that would make you? A big giant jerk. <laughs> Nobody likes that type of Christ follower, Right? Oh, my pastor said, have you heard about, and now you're arguing at, at work, or you're arguing with well, your son or daughter who's written off God in your own home, and you're taking this information, you're going to use it to blast them or convince them or convert them. Don't do it. If anything, take this information and study it out further and ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes even more to comprehend these arguments. And then pray for opportunities with a coworker or a loved one or a neighbor or whoever it is and say, God, the next time a conversation comes up and someone says, I'm just an atheist, I, I don't believe in God, or I'm not sure I'm an agnostic person, God, would you, would you give me the gentleness and the wisdom to step into that conversation and just gently, with compassion, say something like, hey, you know, have you ever considered the law of cause and effect? Everything that begins to exist had a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause. Who caused it? Have you ever considered that inside of you there's this innate awareness of right and wrong, your conscience? Where did it come from? 
Is that your personal opinion? Maybe it came from God. Gentleness and compassion and tenderness. Ravi Zacharias said this one time, he said, what good does it do if you cut somebody's nose off and ask him to smell a rose? And his point is so powerful. You can take these truths and you can cut somebody's nose off and shove it in their face and they're not gonna smell anything because they just don't like you. (laughs) Right? Gentleness, love, and compassion if you're a Christ follower. Now, if you're an atheist or if you're an agnostic today, what what do you do with this? Well, perhaps you take a step further. Maybe like C.S. Lewis, you, you don't necessarily convert to Christianity, but maybe you move away from atheism and you move a little bit more towards theism, or at least you start to study it out. Man, I, what you heard today were some pretty good arguments, I think, for the evidence that God exists. Maybe you start to reconsider those. Maybe you start to study a little bit more. Not to prove that I'm wrong, but just to understand that, that what you believe is right. Go on a search for yourself. Maybe, this, maybe what I said today opens up a door for you to start to seek more understanding and truth about what's really going on in the universe. And just maybe, just maybe today, I don't know, but just maybe there's someone here, even one person maybe watching online, or you're physically present. What you heard today was like, wow. Like I walked in today and I was not a believer but what you just said about the conscience and what you just said about the design of the universe and what you just said about cause and effect, like you, like you got me. Like, I, I, think, I think God is there. I think he's real. I wanna show you something. John chapter one, the apostle John wrote, in the beginning, just like Genesis, in the beginning, the word or Jesus was with God and the word was God. And in verse three, John says this, through him, through the word, through Jesus, all things were made. In fact, without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, John is saying that Jesus is not just the savior. He's not just the one that died on the cross and rose again three days later so we could have eternal life. He's also the one who said in the beginning, let there be light. Jesus is the creator. Everything we see in the solar system, everything we see in this world was made by Jesus. Wow. And then in verse four, John takes this gigantic leap and he says something very different one sentence later. Listen to what he says. In Jesus, not only was Jesus the creator, but in Jesus, there was, say it with me, life. And that life was the light of mankind. Why would John write in verse three that Jesus is the creator of the universe and everything we see, nothing was made that wasn't made by him? And then in verse four, oh, by the way, he brought life to you. Why would he make that jump? Maybe today, maybe he wrote that many, 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 many years ago because he knew we would live in a culture today that has written off God because of science and evolution. Maybe he wanted us to know that It's all here because of Jesus. He is the creator and he's also the savior. In him was life. This Greek word is zoe. It's different from the Greek word bios. Bios is the Greek word for physical life. We're alive right now. Whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, you have physical life. Jesus came to bring you something different, something additional to physical life. It's Zoe, it's spiritual life, it's abundant life. He came to this earth, the creator of the universe came to this earth to offer you spiritual life and that life was in him. 
And when you trust in him, when you put your faith in him that he died on the cross for you and rose again, you receive Zoe, spiritual life, forgiveness of your sins, joy and peace and freedom and power. So right now, there's some of you that are ready to make that decision. God has done something in your heart over the last 30 minutes and you're, you find yourself thinking, that's what I want. Guess what? You can have it. Jesus said, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. <laughs> Everyone's invited. So if you feel led right now, I'm going to say a quick prayer. Take this, these words and make them your own words and talk to God. And in this moment, receive Zoe, spiritual life by trusting in Christ. Will you pray with me? Just say this to Jesus. Jesus, I need life. There's a hole in my heart, an emptiness, a thirst. And so I come to you and I ask you to fill that void. I heard what I needed to hear today and I trust you. I believe not only that you died on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin, but that you also rose again on the third day so that I can have life. So I, I place my life in your hands. I place my faith in you. Wash me, cleanse me and make me your child today. And from this day forward, teach me to follow you, to love you, to obey you, and to honor you with my life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Can we give it up, guys, for what Jesus is doing here today? Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, we want to give you a free gift of, uh, free of charge to you on your way out. There's tables in the back to my left and to my right. If you prayed to receive Christ, if you trusted Christ as your Savior, go grab one of these new Bibles to get you started on your journey. Also talk to our team back there about something called Starting Point. It's a short-term, small group environment. If you still have questions about faith, uh, it's a great place for you to get some answers about the Bible, about Jesus, or anything that you're struggling with. And so I just want to make you aware of that. Hey, guys, we're going to close out with a song right now. It's a great song about what we believe, about God, about Jesus, about Him being our Creator. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet really quick. I want to close out with some worship. I want to worship this God that we have come to know actually exists. He's somebody that we can put our confidence in. He's somebody that we can worship. He's somebody that we can believe in. And then our, uh, our pastors are going to come up and share one more announcement with you. Let's worship. the sun.
Jesus, our Savior.